Signs matter. Doubly so if you don't like to ask for directions. Signs can tell you where you are, where you're going, and where you need to go. But they can only help you if you know what they mean. I distinctly remember the first time that I drove in England, a little over 15 years ago, and Melanie and I had flown over for a vacation. We spent a couple of days in London taking the underground like tourists are supposed to do. And then we rented a car to drive around the countryside for a couple of weeks. Now, the first mistake was that we rented the car in the heart of London at 10 o'clock in the morning on a weekday. That is a terrible time to learn to drive on the left. I got honked at a lot for not making lefts on red. I got honked at a lot for two weeks for not making lefts on red. Our mission was simple that morning. We needed to exit the southeast side of the city so we go to Dover. Now, we didn't have a GPS. Smartphones hadn't been invented yet, but we had, we had a road atlas. We had our wits, and we had all kinds of directions. You know, we had step-by-step, this road, turn here, this road, turn here. So I'm sure we could get from the heart of the city to the to the, where we needed to get to. But, and the nice thing is, you know, most of the road signs in England work pretty much like the road signs in the U.S. I checked that out, so I hadn't really invested much time in studying them because they look pretty much the same. With one significant exception that pretty much set us off course right off the bat. See, we had all these great directions for turn by turn, step by step, but what we didn't realize is that if you are in a lane that is marked with a road number, like the A20, and it's in parentheses, that does not mean you're on the A20. It means you're on the road to get to the A20. We didn't understand this fine distinction, so we thought somehow we had miraculously jumped forward in the directions... So we'd be looking for the next step when we had never actually gotten on the road in the first place. One mistake piled on top of the next, on top of the next, until we were hopelessly off course. It's the polite term for lost. We gave up hope that there was no way we were getting back on the original course. That's fine. We said, well, the good news is London has a ring road around it. I think it's the M25 is the beltway. I'm getting a nod from for the back there, so I'm in good shape. So he said, well, if we can just get out of the city, get the M25, it's a circle, we will eventually get to what we need to, which is a good principle, but the M25 is 117 miles long. Uh, London's a really big place. But if we got there, we would knew we would take a penalty for not having read the signs correctly, but we would get where we need to go. And that that's what we did, right? We, we eventually popped out on the, on the north side of London, so about 12 o'clock. We were trying to go out on the 4 o'clock side, but, you know, we went around, and we only lost about two hours, so we counted ourselves lucky. We're back on course, misread the signs, only lost two hours. So signs matter, and understanding them correctly matters even more. Right? A misunderstood sign is probably worth less than, than no sign at all. And just as there are signs all over the road, there are signs all throughout the Bible. One group that's particularly famous and that I want to talk about for the next, next several weeks are the set of signs that are in the Gospel of John. And John makes it really easy for us because he tells us what things are signs. And they're the miracles of Jesus. Right? There are lots and lots of miracles of Jesus recorded in the Bible, 
But John, who's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us about six specific miracles which were signs. And these six point to the greatest miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the great sign. And so together, he tells us that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These seven signs of the Savior were recorded so that we would have right belief, right? We've just spent four weeks talking about 1 John, and we saw the importance of right belief. Belief that Jesus is the Christ, right? Not a last name, it's a, it's a title. He's the Son of God. They are written to bring people to faith who do not currently believe in Jesus Christ. And they are written to believers to strengthen and build up that faith. And so they're going to be our subject between now and Easter And I'm very excited about it. I'm very blessed. Uh, I think we're going to be blessed by this series. I love talking about gospel narratives and just seeing Jesus up close and personal and the things that he does. Uh, So to give you a preview, here's here's the calendar. The next two weeks, uh, our own Dr. Niall Radcliffe will be in the pulpit. Uh, And then I will be back, and we will go through Easter. There's an asterisk on the 20th. Uh, That's not a a sign on the 20th. That's more of a pivot as we look beyond Easter. And then on Easter, of course, we have the great sign when Jesus rises from the dead. So let's begin our series by looking at the first miracle, which is recorded in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there are six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The sign takes place in what is quite literally the first week of Jesus' public ministry. He has been baptized and five men have started following him as disciples. Andrew and Peter, Philip and Nathaniel, and one unnamed disciple who is almost certainly John himself. They have yet to see or hear much from him, but he has promised that they will see extraordinary things. And at the end of this first week, 
Jesus was invited to a wedding in the town of Cana, along with his disciples, and his mother was also there. And at the wedding, a terrible faux pas takes place. They run out of wine. The Jewish wedding lasted for seven days, and the groom was responsible for providing food and drink for that entire week. Now, to run out of wine before you run out of party was a social disaster. This family was going to be pariahs forever. They were going to be torched on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. It was going to be terrible for them. And so, as this mini-crisis unfolds, Mary approaches her eldest son, as she's probably done many times before, and, and she hands him a problem to solve. And this leads to a somewhat unusual exchange in verses 3 and 4, right? It's an exchange that reads, we're, it's challenging for us, right? It's confusing. I, it's, you have to read it a lot, I think, to really see what's going on here. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. This is, I think, a challenging conversation for lots of Christians because, A, it's just sort of a weird interaction. They seem to be talking past each other. And B, Jesus doesn't seem very nice to his mom. Right? So this is, we struggle with this sometimes. But, I will preface by noting that addressing her as woman, is not, which, would, which reads terribly in the English, I mean, just really does, it's against our culture, but it was not disrespectful in that culture. It would be perhaps the best equivalent in our culture would be addressing her as ma'am. It is a respectful address. But it does include in here a gentle, respectful rebuke for her having asked in this way. Tradition teaches us, and there's no real biblical reason to say it's not the case, that Mary was probably a widow at this point. So she would have probably relied heavily on Jesus as the eldest son to provide for her and to solve the difficult problems. And so here she comes with yet another problem. And no doubt he has been a caring and resourceful provider for many years. But now his time of ministry has arrived, right? This past week has seen a change in what he does. He is now focused purely on the proclamation of the kingdom of God. When Jesus refers to his hour in his response to her, that phrase, my hour, throughout the Gospel of John, is always talking about his death and resurrection and glorification. And so I think his point in bringing it into the conversation here is that for her to approach him as his mother and say, can you do this thing for me to solve this, the way she always has, is no longer appropriate because he is now focused 100% on doing the will of his father, of doing the mission that God has given him. Now, one of the curious aspects of this conversation is that she asks him to solve a wine problem, and he answers by talking about his death resurrection. Right? I got a wine problem. Let me tell you about my crucifixion. As weird as it sounds, this pattern is actually not that uncommon. If you, if you read the Gospel of John, and I would encourage everyone to read the Gospel of John. If you have not read it recently... 
I'd encourage you to read it. There's 21 chapters. The chapters are kind of longish. So if you go half a chapter a day, you'll be reading right along with this series, and you'll finish right around Easter time. And I think you'll be blessed for it. And you'll see that this is a common pattern in his conversations where people come to him and talk about an ordinary, everyday thing. And then he talks about that thing in a deep and spiritual way. In chapter 3, Nicodemus talks to him about physical birth, and Jesus talks about spiritual birth. In chapter 4, the Samaritan woman talks to him about water, and he talks about living water. And his disciples talk about food, and he talks about spiritual food. And so I think what we're seeing here is that same pattern. Mary talks about wine, and Jesus talks about his crucifixion and resurrection, from which he provides the spiritual wine of his blood. It's that spiritual wine that we're going to be remembering later this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We see a second pattern that's also very common in the Gospels play out. It's also a source of confusion of uh, what just went on here. And the pattern is that quite often people will come to Jesus and ask for him to do a miracle or to do something. And it's kind of on their terms, right? They want it for them and for their reasons. And so he will say no to test their faith. And if they go away, they go away. But if instead they persist in faith, and make it clear that it's not about them, it's about their faith in him, then he'll usually honor and reward that faith. I think we see that here in verse 5, where his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Right? He more or less just said no, but she persists in her faith. She has no idea what he's going to do. She's just confident that he will provide. And he rewards that. John now notes that there are six large stone water jars used for cleansing oneself ceremonially. Altogether, they hold somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons. And he tells the servants to fill them completely. And then Jesus has them draw some of that water out and to carry it to the person who's in charge of the party. We would probably call him the caterer today, right? The master of the feast. And the water has become wine. And when he tastes it, he's amazed at how great this wine is because it is so much better than anything that has been served so far at this party. The master of the feast commends the groom for saving the best wine for last. Because apparently it was very common to serve the good wine early on in the week when the people are sober and paying attention. And as the week wears on and they get progressively more drunk and tired and uncaring, you just bring out the cheap stuff. Jesus, though, provides the best wine last. John finishes this story by telling us both the significance of the sign and its impact on his life as a witness to this miracle, as one of those first five followers. It's in verse 11 where he says, This... The first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Every sign has a purpose. It points to something. 
right? If it's not pointing to something, it's not a sign. So what is this sign pointing to? John was the first person witness to every one of the signs that he's got here. He is telling us based on his experience what he saw, and he certainly knows what these signs meant to him at that time. He knows the impact they had on those who saw them. But he's also writing this gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing it after decades of ministry and decades of reflection on what this meant. And so he has come to realize that there was a deeper and richer meaning to these signs that he was only able to understand after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension and after the Holy Spirit was poured out. And so we need to realize that if he says a miracle isn't just a miracle, but that it is a sign, that we need to look not only at what it's pointing to right then and there, what it said about Jesus at that moment, but what greater truth is this pointing us to about Jesus of Nazareth? And I believe there are three things that this sign points to. The first is in the immediate sense, it's the power of Jesus. Then in the intermediate sense, a little bit down the road, the passion of Jesus. But I think it also points us to the ultimate, the purpose of Jesus. And so it's these three things I want to look at for the rest of our time together. The most immediate, of course, is the power of Jesus. Clearly, his first five disciples experience this right away. They are right here. They see water turn into great wine, right? This is clearly astounding. He's demonstrated his power over nature because he can effortlessly and instantly transform something like 150 gallons of water into excellent wine. So a power over nature. We also see a power to transform things by transforming the ordinary into the extraordinary. Ordinary water into amazing wine. So these two things, power over nature and power to transform, these were immediately clear to John. It's interesting that most of Jesus' miracles are very, very public, right? The Gospels record just how many people were always around him as he works most of his miracles. He does does them in front of crowds that get bigger and bigger and bigger and more and more ecstatic. He is beyond any rock star we can imagine because people are clamoring to see him do miracles, to heal people, to cast out demons. This one is somewhat unique because the only people who know about it are the servants and his mother and the five disciples. And so the purpose of this sign is clearly tied directly to them. And John tells us that this demonstration of power was sufficient for them to believe in him. Now up to this point, these five guys who had started following him were doing it on the recommendation of John the Baptist. Or they were doing it off a family recommendation, because four of these guys were were pairs of brothers. So one of them would start following him and then told his brother, hey, you've got to check this guy out. They followed him in one case because Jesus had some special insight into his life and character. But 
But they haven't really been believing in him. They just think he's interesting, he's compelling. They've been told they should learn from this guy, but they don't know why. But this miracle seems to be sufficiently powerful that the disciples who witnessed it, they stuck with him through thick and thin. John chapter 6 is going to record a time when most of the people following Jesus gave up on him. Because they were so grossed out by his description of needing to feast on his flesh as the bread of life and his blood to reach eternal life. They didn't understand the symbolism that we're celebrating later this morning. That they just said, this is too creepy, we're leaving. But his disciples had seen him up close. They had seen his power. And so they stuck with him. I think that was the difference between them and the crowds. They had seen this miracle. As modern day hearers and readers, we need to get the same thing from this that the original witnesses did. That we need to see it for what it is. It is a demonstration of his power over nature and his power to transform things, including people, from the ordinary to the extraordinary. All right, this is the demonstration of power by the one who, who was present at creation, the one through whom all things were made, the one who has been given all authority on heaven and earth, And we need to accept this and embrace this miracle and use it to fuel our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Because he has the power to provide, right? He can turn water into wine. And he has the power to transform the ordinary into the extraordinary. So when we are in the midst of a crisis, we need to have confidence that he will provide and he will transform. And it may not be in the way we expect, but he will be there and he will provide. And when he does, it will be in abundance and it will be excellent. We need to follow the advice of Mary and just do whatever he says. Now, we know this miracle is a sign. And as a sign, it needs to point to more than just that immediate experience of Christ's power. Because... He did loads and loads of miracles. John tells us that if you wrote them all down, there wouldn't be, the world couldn't hold all the books that could be written about what he did. As a sign, this transcends the immediate. And so the second thing that it points us to is what I'm calling the intermediate, and it is the passion of Jesus. And I use this in the original sense of the word passion which is a Latin word that means suffering. We've adopted that word to mean a lot of different things. But the reason we talk about the Passion Week and the Passion of the Christ, and it seems like a really weird word as somebody who knows the English version before I know the Bible-ish version, it points to suffering. It talks about his suffering, death, and resurrection. The very thing we'll be remembering when we observe the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. And there are several clues from this event that takes place in the very first week of Christ's ministry that point us to these amazing events that take place in the last week of his ministry. Taken together, I think these clues form the sign. The first is that at the very beginning, before he works the miracle, he talks about his hour. And as I mentioned, that is always a reference 
to his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. This is a resurrection or a reference to when he was glorified through suffering and new life. Now, since this was his glorification, we should note carefully how John ends the narrative, right? He tells us that this miracle manifested Christ's glory, right? It, to manifest something is to reveal something, and so this miracle revealed something of his glory, his future sacrifice on the cross, All right? So at the beginning and the end, we have pointers to the cross, This is week one of his ministry. He's already pointing to the end. But there's more than that, right? We have here wine, and Jesus himself explicitly connects wine and blood. Wine is the symbol of his blood. He establishes both in John chapter 6, when he talks about the need to drink of his blood, and when he sets up the Lord's Supper, shortly before his crucifixion, and he says, this is the cup is the new covenant in my blood. Wine and blood. The fourth piece of the clue, I think, is that we see blood and water throughout the Gospel of John and about his writings. He associates blood and water quite often. It always points to the cross, right? Because what happened at the cross when his side was pierced, what came out? Blood and water. And so what do we see in this miracle? We see water, and we see symbolic blood together. We see a reference to his hour, and we see a revelation of his glory. And so this very first sign, and you can translate it as the beginning of signs, the beginning of signs points straight to the great sign, the crucifixion, the resurrection. The sign that he did in a village wedding celebration with with five disciples and his mom points us to the ultimate sign of hope for humanity. The sacrifice he made so that our sins could be forgiven once and for all. Now, ultimately, though, we know that Jesus just didn't go and die on a cross because he felt like it. He had a purpose in his sacrifice, And this sign clearly points us to the purpose of Jesus. His ultimate reason for coming, his ultimate reason for suffering, and for death. There's a couple dimensions of this I'd like to explore. First is that throughout the Old Testament, the giving of wine, the serving of wine, is one of the key elements and signs of living in the time of the Messiah and in heaven. We don't have time to go through all the Old Testament passages. We've got Sunday school this morning. But Jeremiah, Hosea, and Amos talk about wine in the Messianic age. That is a sign of God's blessing when the Messiah comes. So, of course, Jesus is the Messiah. This is part of the sign of his coming as the anointed Messiah. I do want to take a moment to read Isaiah 25, 6 through 8, which describes God's feast in heaven. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. 
And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. This was accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He provides the wine for this feast through his blood shed on the cross. The other dimension of his ultimate purpose here is that in this miracle, we see the literal transformation from the old covenant to the new covenant in Christ. The old covenant, the Jewish law of God, was built around being clean, around washing yourself, right? Verse 6 makes it clear, these jars of water were there to wash yourself to be clean before God. And Jesus took this water that was used for cleaning yourself, this water that you had to apply over and over again because you kept getting dirty, because you kept sinning, and you could never keep it all together. And he turned it into wine. And wine is quite literally the symbol of the new covenant in Christ. Again, he tells us at the Last Supper, I'm sure we'll be using these words in just a few minutes. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. In the old covenant, we could never stay clean. We just kept getting dirty again. We had to wash ourselves and clean ourselves. In the new covenant, we are clean forever through the blood of Jesus Christ. See, no amount of washing can ever keep us clean from our sins and our guilt and our shame because we're just going to get dirty again. But when Christ went to the cross, though he never did anything wrong, he was completely innocent. He took the sin of the world on himself. Right Through his pain, through his suffering, through the blood that poured out on the cross, he took your sin and my sin on himself. And as he died and was raised from the dead, he opened up the path where we could be forgiven for our sins forever through faith in him, through obedience to God. So that no matter how bad our sins are, no matter how troubled we are, we can call on God to forgive us, and he will through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we can live forever in the presence of God. And we can be confident in our salvation. Jesus did this to glorify God. God who loves us, who created us in his image, who is desperate for us to relate to him and turn to him and ask for forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ so that we can be restored to him. We can never earn this forgiveness, but we can get it for free. All you have to do is accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and ask for forgiveness for your sins and invite him into your heart and God will forgive and you will live forever as a child of the new covenant. Clean the blood of Jesus Christ.
At this wedding feast, the master of the feast exclaimed in verse 10 that everybody serves the best wine first. The language here literally says every man gives the good wine first. What we see here is that God is different. He has saved the best wine for last. The sweet wine of the gospel has replaced the water of the law. That was Christ's purpose in coming. And through the wine of the Messiah, he brought our certain hope for the future. Please join me in prayer. Father God, we are so thankful for the gift of your son, Jesus. We praise you for his sacrifice on the cross. Though he had no sin in him, he took our sin upon him. Lord, as we look at this miracle, we are astounded by his power We are reminded of his suffering and death. We are in awe of his purpose. And Lord, if there is any here who has not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would speak to their heart. I pray that they would come and accept the forgiveness of sins that you offer. That they would no longer need to wash themselves over and over and over again through ritual, but could be cleansed once forever through the blood of the Lamb. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper this morning, we're going to drink the symbol of Jesus' blood. The symbol of his power and his passion and his purpose. And I would encourage you to examine yourself. Right? Scripture commands us to examine our hearts before we partake of the Lord's Supper. Paul tells us not to take this in an unworthy manner. So if you have sin in your heart that you have not yet confessed to God, use this time to confess that sin to God. To ask His forgiveness so that you can drink this drink in celebration of His glorious work on the cross.